welcome to 13, the bi-weekly podcast that asks questions of Colgate University community members. I'm your host, Daniel DeVries, and today we are starting our new season of 13 with a rebroadcast of a live recording that was done on Colgate Day uh, earlier this year. That was on January 13th. In this episode, I will be talking with President Brian W. Casey about the Third Century Plan and all of the exciting developments on campus, and I hope you enjoy. Hello! Happy Colgate Day, and welcome to the very first in a series of live conversations with university leadership where we plan to discuss where Colgate is and explore the university's Third Century Plan. It is important for me to note at the top that this plan is relying to a great extent on the Colgate Fund, perhaps one of the most important ways alumni are connected to Colgate and its future. Uh, If you have not submitted questions or if you have additional questions, please send them to alumni at colgate.edu or feel free to send a direct message to us on Twitter at ColgateUniv or on Facebook. Uh, We hope to get to as many questions as possible today. Uh, We'll be speaking broadly in these conversations with campus leaders about all things Colgate, Uh, but I also want to be sure to give ample time to the state of the third century plan. Uh, In May of 2018, the Board of Trustees, Faculty, and Colgate Alumni Council approved and endorsed the comprehensive plan that seeks to pursue Colgate's mission at its highest level and to establish Colgate as one of the very finest, perhaps the finest, undergraduate institution in the nation. So there are four main pillars of the plan. Attracting and supporting outstanding students and faculty, strengthening the university's academic enterprise, enriching the student experience, and improving the campus and the environment. So who better to talk through these pillars, as well as the issues facing Colgate and higher education, than the president, Brian W. Casey, who is now in his seventh year at the helm. President Casey, welcome to today's conversation. Thank you, Dan. Uh, Thank you to everyone who has joined us. Um, You know, when we're thinking about why we're doing this, one thing that we learned in the pandemic was that you can't over-communicate, that... um, you know, silver lining of a pandemic was we started this town hall process. We started reaching out to folks. We sent out lots of videos and people liked it. So um, this is our attempt to take a good thing from the pandemic, which is lets us talk to folks. Uh, the other thing is there's a lot happening there. Um, and we live it. You and I live it. We On the campus, we live all these changes. But we recognize that people aren't it's hard to believe they're not looking at the third century plan every day and, and thinking what's happening at Colgate. So it, this, I think this affords us a chance to say what's happening. So let, let's talk about what's happening and what's next, because people always ask me what's next. But So we have a plan. Um, and there's a couple things to understand about the plan. I mean, because schools have plans. Universities have plans. Um, what is it about ours? First is, um, as you pointed out in your four pillars, it's comprehensive. It touches everything. I, you know, I've seen uh, liberal arts colleges say this is a science plan, or this is a plan for financial aid, or this is a plan for faculty. Um, what we wanted to do instead, and it took a long time on the campus with a board of trustees, is to say in each of our core areas, each of the things that is fundamental to what Colgate does, what's the best version of that? What's the best posture we can have in each of those areas? 
So the plan is comprehensive. It's bold. You know, it's, it's wow, how do we be best in class in that area of, of the university? And the other is, and this is something that um, is hard on a campus, it's deliberate and about action. Um, those of you who've spent time on campuses know that we talk a lot. Uh, we talk and talk and talk, and there's always committees. But this is just, in each of these areas, what's the next step? What's the next step? So let's talk about what has already happened, um, because we're a couple years into it. Mm -hmm. Again, uh, the pandemic both slowed things down, but they also allowed us to deepen certain things. But let's look. Okay, you, you talked about attracting talent, students, faculty, staff. Obviously, the most important thing we did in attracting was the Colgate commitment. This was a step-by-step, -step, how do we take federal student loans away from our students? So normally a student, if they applied at Colgate, it turns out they have X amount of need. Like they can contribute so much to our state of tuition. And how will we make up the gap? Well, what we've done is for those coming from families from $175,000 or less, we said there won't be a loan component. Mm. It'll be replaced by a grant. So that was a several million dollar <laughs> multi-million dollar investment. And to our alumni, thank you because you paid for it. Uh, you know, like it's, I, I can, it's, I talk to other college presidents. I say, no, our alums paid for that. I said, we're going to do this. We need this much in our support. The Colgate Fund exactly matched it. So we took away the loans. The other thing with our faculty is we've dramatically improved uh, their sabbatical policies. We've given them more money to travel, more money to research, because that helps the classroom. Mm -hmm. So that was a multi-million dollar investment. And the way you think about it, that if, if I were head of a hospital, how do you invest in your doctors? If I was head of a, a pharmaceutical company, how do you invest in your researchers? Same thing, we did that. And then with staff, um, those of you who haven't been to the campus, we've really started pushing on housing. We really need to be able to have people live in this village. So that's that's what's happening mm -hmm. in that area. The next is uh, what's happening on the academic enterprise. If you were on the campus, if you were on campus today, you would see two massive building projects. One is Olin Hall, which is our largest science building, is Basically, we've torn off the roof, we ripped it open, and we're building off uh, the back of it for a mind-brain behavior initiative. Thank you to Mr. Ho. There's the world's largest crane on the campus right now. It is, it is so tall, we actually had to put red lights on top of it because of air traffic control. We Actually, it's that tall. Um, and then the Benton Center, which starts really reimagining the middle campus. That's going to be where we have... Um, arts, computer science, theater and dance is going to be in there, just a place of creativity. So that's what's happening academically. When I think about the student, what's happening with the student experience, um, I'm going to remind the alumni what we've done already before we talk about the lower campus. Since 2016, Colgate's put in over $100 million in the residential life up the hill. Um, uh, Andrews, Stillman, Curtis, Drake, all renovated. Burke, Pynchon, built. So most of our first years, and we'll soon complete this out, are living in fully renovated buildings. Like, like I don't want to forget that. Like, that's a big deal. Mm -hmm. um, we'll talk about the lower campus in a second. And then finally, how do you how do you improve the campus and the village? And Oak Drive is restored. There's 400 new trees. We're about to restore Willow Path. Um, people keep saying the campus looks good. I'm like, well, yeah, there's 400 new trees on the campus. So that's what's already happening. Um, when I think about what's next, um, 
you always push on financial aid. We've got to take away loans from everybody. We have to meet the need of all of our students. We are in, um, we're probably going to talk about this, we're in the heart of our admission season, and we are toe-to-toe with the best schools in the country. We have to make sure students can come here. The next thing, and this is a, a, a could be a topic, three hours, of how do we move our faculty to teaching two courses a semester rather than three courses a semester? Um, how do we do that so they can be better um, researchers, better teachers? So that's a huge move. Um, then when I think about the academic enterprise, the next thing in the middle campus is, you know, how do we bring entrepreneurship into that area? How do we do that? Then, of course, when we think about student life, the next of the bucket, the lower campus, Broad Street to College Street, where over 1,500 Colgate students, we have not invested in that infrastructure since 2004. That is, that's not good. So uh, <laughs> how do we think about how our juniors and seniors live? And then finally, you keep pushing on the, um, on the, the village and on the campus. And so lots happening, but the way you think about it is in each area, what's the best version of Colgate? financial aid, curriculum, living, the village, what's the best version? And be bold enough and conscious enough and intentional enough to start the multi-year steps to take to get it. You just have to keep moving, moving, moving in service of a goal. Um, and that's what we're doing with really big cranes, lots of really big cranes. <laughs> so that's where we are. Very good. That's yep. a great intro. Thank yep. you so much. Yeah. Um, we're going to get to a bunch of alumni questions now. Awesome. Um, there's been a lot submitted. So thank <laughs> you to everyone uh, who sent in a question. And um, I'm very excited to go through these. And I thought it would be best. You kind of alluded to this a little bit. But uh, we're on the cusp of the application deadline mm -hmm. here, uh, two days away uh, for the class of 2027. Um, so I will start out uh, there. And uh, I've tried to group things a little bit. So uh, our first question is from Madeline Bayless, uh, class of 1976 uh, from Yardley, Pennsylvania. And she asks, since the housing experience is a key element of the Colgate experience and the third century plan, how is Colgate thinking about ways to avoid overacceptance of admissions offers to prevent a suboptimal living situation on campus for some students? Uh, great question. By the way, I've been to Yardley, Pennsylvania. It's quite lovely. Um, <laughs> so uh, let's talk about what happened. So Colgate, like so many liberal arts colleges, you get about eight to 9,000 applications. That's what Williams gets. That's what Bowdoin gets. That's what Hamilton College gets. So but then look what happened. We're coming out of the pandemic, and all of a sudden, instead of getting 8,000 or 9,000 applications, all of a sudden we get 17,000. So, you know, we're like, what do you do with those numbers? But, you know, we, we reacted, and we, so we admitted a class, and we, we, we looked at normal yield patterns. And we, we wondered, what, what's that noise about? What, that's really strange to go to 17,000. So we, we dropped our admit rate, but we thought, well, maybe these are just kids throwing in applications off a transom or over a transom. We had no idea, aiming for a class of 790, that over 900 would have said yes. We were stunned by that. So then the year after, applications go to 21,400. So, so we, we thought, okay, so maybe that COVID bump was not just, it's, it's sustaining in some sort of way. So we dropped the admit rate to 12%. I mean, I just want to point that out. That, that puts us in 
the hyper elite. So we drop it to 12%. We thought for sure, <laughs> for sure, every model we had had us having 710 students say yes on May 1st, and we were going to wait list our way up to the right class size. So it's the morning of, of May 1st when they, and all of a sudden we're at 820. We, so what's happening right now, uh, deadline for applications are due and it's Sunday night at 1159, I guess maybe at midnight you could submit. <laughs> we're tracking again above 20,000. So we're gonna have to drop the admit rate pretty dramatically. Um, I don't know what the numbers are right now, but it was never our intention to have two large classes. And I understand the um, stresses that puts on, um, not just living, but just services sure. and advising. Um, though what's very strange about Colgate is, we've looked at this historically, our larger classes tend to be happier. They retained at higher numbers. It's counterintuitive. You, you would think smaller numbers would yeah. make them more happy. Nope. Every year we've had a large class we retain more, so we're, we're trying to understand that. But but um, that's a great question. It was never our intention to have two large classes. If the dean of the college were sitting outside this recording studio, he'd say, "Please do not have more than <laughs> 790 students or 800 students, whatever we're aiming for." But we are not trying to do that. So it's a great question. But um, to the sophomores and first years who are in big classes, hope you're happy. I think th I think they are. I think they are. All right, we've got a question here from Mary Harrigan uh, from the class of 1996. Uh, Mary is from Harrison, New York, and she asks, can President Casey comment on what is working in terms of recruiting a diverse student body? Great question, um, and we think about this a lot. By far, the most important thing we've done is take away the loans. Mm -hmm. We took away the loans, and um, first of all, it made more people say, wait a minute, I, I can go to Colgate. Um, it's not this hyper expensive, low um, financial aid place. This is a place that clearly wants me to uh, come and will support me. So the Colgate commitment, in addition to making real changes in students' lives, it opened the doors for us. It led us to go to more places and say, you can come here and you're going to graduate without any debt. So I, that is the first thing. And the second thing is, um, and maybe this contributed to such a high application volume, we fundamentally altered the, the number of schools we went to. We increased the number of admissions counselors. We threw the net wider. Um, and so, you know, I think those two things right off the bat. Um, we also, if you go to our webpage, you'll see there's a diversity, equity, inclusion plan. Any student who wants to know can look at it. So, you know, it's part of it's mechanical and part of it's communication. Mm. Um, you know, it's a it's a. I'm so glad I'm not Gary Ross, head of admissions, because it's. I wish it was a science, but it's much an art. But I but I, if I think about the levers of diversity, I think it's those two that have really really helped us. A question from Roger Rossi, class of 1985, who lives in Clifton, New Jersey. And Roger asks, has the university done away with requiring grades for admission? Please also discuss admission criteria. Um, so Roger is exactly my age and he's from New Jersey. So I'm, I'm from New Jersey. So this <laughs> warms my heart. Um, we have not gotten away with grades. Um, Colgate as was the case with almost every institution come through the pandemic, uh, we went test optional. 
So we took away the requirement that you had to submit SAT scores or ACT scores or AP tests because they weren't being offered. We had so many students who just said, I kept trying to take the ACTs and they kept canceling it. Mm -hmm. So we said for three years, we'll suspend it. And because three years, you know, it's an arc. Students think at the end of their sophomore year into their senior year how to apply. So we can't just say it's one year. We said for three years, we're going to take this away. A lot of other schools did the same thing. By the way, grades, oh, yes, you had better submit your grades. Those of you who are applying right now, get your grades in. Um, so grades, absolutely. And by the way, grades are f a far better indicator of how well you'll do in college than standardized tests. So that's just – so those are required. So we took them away. And we had switched to our – we switched our admissions approach to instead of just looking at the numbers, looking at lots of variables, much more holistic hmm. admissions process. So we found that without them, we were actually taking a closer, deeper, richer look at our students. So applications go up. The quality of the students coming in has risen. And the students – and obviously we're over-enrolling. So um, part of me says, well, I'm not sure why I would go back to it. Now, I can understand the sense of that question, which is, do we still have standards? Do we still care about academic quality? Absolutely. I mean, if, if our admission rate drops below 12%, the way you get into Colgate is by being an excellent, excellent student. So we haven't, got, we haven't moved away from that. We moved away from standardized tests. Now, what's interesting, students still can submit standard. They can submit their ACT scores. They can submit their SAT scores. That number, the percentage of applicants submitting, has risen steadily. We think we'll see more than two-thirds of our students' applicants submit standardized scores. Um, it's still, it's still, it's it's funny to think that five thousand applications might come in in the next thirty-six hours. But um, you're seeing a movement of students submitting their scores. So, so, so the question is: Do we get rid of away from grades? No. Grades are still required. You can submit your standardized scores. And the fundamental way you get into Colgate University is by being a very, very good student in high school. So that's hmm. that. We won't, we won't move away from that. Uh, and our last kind of admission-focused question, uh, Nicholas Brill, class of 1969 from Newton Highlands, Mass., asks, how much lower um, of an acceptance rate um, and new planned endowed chairs – uh, in affect our national standing qualitatively and on rankings we all love to hate. We, <laughs> uh, Nicholas, thank you for that question. We do love to hate those yes. uh, rankings. I, I have to say, you know, they always come out and you you immediately drop into your posture of we don't care about them, we don't look at them. Uh, we do. We absolutely look at them. Uh, what's really um, perhaps frustrating is – just at the moment, Colgate's admissions numbers are literally incomprehensible in their changes. And uh, was a college prowler, one of these horrible sites said, you know, there's no schools hotter than Colgate. It's the exact moment that U.S. News no longer relies on admissions <laughs> data for their rankings. I'm like, thank you, people. Um, will it affect um, – Probably less so because they're they're relying less on admissions uh, information, uh, but we do think it's a flywheel effect that more students say, "Hey, there's something going on mm. here. We'll keep applying." The endowed chairs absolutely because it helps your quality of your faculty. Um, 
and the long-term way you change a reputation of institution is no, um, no single lever of, oh, we got applications up or this. The, the, the long-term game for uh, improving the reputation always comes back to what's the academic quality? What's the academic quality? What's it? So the chairs, which is endowment to support our best faculty and help us attract faculty, that actually will, if there are rankings 20 years, who knows? Long-term, that's what will drive it. That's what will drive it. All right. All right. We're going to move over to some finance themes ah, questions yes. here. Um, and you kind of, you touched on this a little bit, but uh, Claudia Eaton uh, from the class of 1979 from Hingham, Mass. asks, please explain the new financial aid policy relative to the old policy. Sure. Um, the new, as I said before, when any student applies... They fill out, and we've all heard this, it, it's sort of in the, in the air, FAFSA forms. These are federally designed forms to determine how much a family can contribute to tuition, room, and board. And those are determined not by us, by, but by this formula. Now, we do have our own formulas. We look at certain things. Are there other students in your family and schools? But it determines, we think you can contribute 20000 for what is to be frank, a $80,000, $75,000, dollars a year cost. And so then this, the institution has to say, well, we think you can contribute this much, and we'll, we'll, we will give, we will, we'll put a grant in aid, we'll give work study, we'll do all these pieces. But the gap was always, you're going to take out loans for the remainder of it. What we're saying now is this. If you are coming from a family with family income of $175,000 or less, that piece that normally would have been loans is now more grant from the institution. So in essence, it's coming out of our pocket rather than you going to a third-party loan provider. Um, so that, that's the first thing. The second thing, and I, and I don't think we communicate this that well, um, we've also said that for families uh, coming from $150,000 or less, you will never pay more than 10% of your family's income toward Colgate tuition. So when as we've, we've handicapped our, or handcuffed ourselves. You know, we're saying, you'll never pay more than this, and we've got the rest. Hmm. So it's a little, it's a, it's a we, you know, we're holding ourselves to this, saying, you know, we gotta, we, we've got to help these people get in. So those are the, the two main changes. When I think about going forward, we still have a lot of students applying from 175000 or more. Because if you think about middle class, if you're living in New York City or we're talking about Clifton, New Jersey, you know, 175000 and you have three children, that's a stretch. Yeah. So we have to move this Colgate commitment further. But mechanically, that's what it is. The most important things we're saying, we're going to take the debt away. So so right now I can I can say to a student who's – one of their parents is a high school principal, and their other parent is a part-time nurse. You know, they're, they're at home, they're raising. And say their combined income is 175000 or just under. I can say, you can come to Colgate. It's less expensive than a SUNY school, and you will graduate without debt. Uh, that's a really, really fun thing to say. The other thing, and I, I can't believe I forgot this, if you're coming from families from $85,000 or less, Colgate's free. Colgate is free. So uh, we, uh, Gary Ross and some of the admissions folks have been on panels, and people ask the question, well, how much is Colgate? It's awfully powerful to say for particular audiences, oh, it's free. 
it's free. Um, now, I, I want to point out something that because people ask me this all the time, students are still expected to contribute from summer jobs. They're still expected to have work study. I think there's a sense of, you know, free, well, that feels bad. There's something bad about that. Like they're not, there's no skin in the game. Mm. No, everyone has skin in this game. Everyone's contributing to their education. So I, I just want to make sure I put that out there. But that's, that's the structure. And if I think about this campaign ahead, we're always going to be pushing on financial aid. Always, always, always. Because talent comes from all corners and I, they need to come here. Mm. Yeah. And not surprisingly, we had a bunch of questions about um, financial difficulties in higher education sure. broadly. Um, and uh, Kenneth Broad, a member of the class of 1988 from Mill Valley, California, asks, how much has the broad market downturn across asset classes hurt the endowment? And what is the likely impact on giving? Um, I know Ken, so it doesn't uh, surprise me that this is his question. Hi, Ken. Um <laughs> Two things. One is uh, we've actually done quite well in our endowment. Um, we have beaten the market for the last several um, cycles. Um, the university's endowment, um, which had just gotten up, you know, about one point three billion, is still just hovering around one point two billion. So we've done we've done quite well. It it, it was fun to have one point three thirteen. <laughs> was that thirteen hundred millions? Anyway, uh, uh, so it we're doing okay. What we do know is two things that will harm us. Um, donors actually don't mind recessions. It, it, that doesn't drive things. Donors and people support institution don't like volatility. Mm -hmm. They don't – they're like, well, I'd like to help the institution, but I don't know what's happening. I don't know what the markets could be like a year from now. I feel unsettled, and that's what actually harms you. But when I think about – so I, when I think about the university's balance sheet, I think our, our endowment is doing well. We've got a great group that looks at our endowment. But we are getting so much pressure on inflation, so much pressure on inflation on any building project, on heating, mm -hmm. on um, just, just the day-to-day -day running your institution. Uh, the other thing is wage pressures. Mm -hmm. I don't know where that's going to turn, but but um, when I think about next year's budget, the 2023-24 budget, the cost of materials, inflation, and wages still feels tight. Mm. Um, and I don't know when that's – if I knew that, I would be in a different job. Uh, but that's where it feels like. But but let me go back to – I think the question is how does it affect the institution's balance sheet and gifts to the institution? People don't like uncertainty. Sure. And I can feel that. So um, – but Ken, Ken is a great supporting institution. I know he's not wavering. So thank you for not wavering, Ken. <laughs> All right. Uh, we have a question here from William Castle. He's a member of the class of 1987 and from Atlanta, Georgia. And uh, Ken, or William, excuse me, asks, what is the university doing to reduce or at least minimize the growing cost of tuition for all students? Boy, um, it is a wrestling match. Um, and I... It's so interesting when tuition increases are reported. Um, there's a season. It typically is around February when institutions announce their increases. And you'll see a New York Times piece pop up. Stanford increases tuition by 5%. Penn increases by 6.2%. So you just get these hits. Um, you get no context. You get no, well, why? Or what's going on? Have they increased financial aid? So um, I understand 
the, hey, what's going on? Mm-hmm. Um, and I also want to say, there's no joy. We don't sit around and go, ooh, look, how high can we get this? What's the market going to bear? Right. You know what I mean? Like, you know, oh, wait, our applications are soaring. Let's ride that up. Like, th- that, that's not the conversation because when you raise tuition, you're also going to have to raise financial aid. So it, it, is, it is not a single lever. But I will say this. The thing that drives our budget are two things. The first is the cost of people. 85% of our budget is people. So when there's massive wage inflation, pressure on wages, um, we need to make sure our, our staff and our faculty can afford to live. So you know we are going to try to keep up with inflation. So that inflation is going to drive costs. The other thing, and this is a, a very subtle argument, which is never spoken about, which is the demand for services. Well, why are there more people on a campus? Why, you know, what, why is it so expensive? Well, when students show up on their first day at, let's face it, an elite institution like Colgate, they expect profoundly strong career services. They expect trainers for all of our teams. They expect help in classrooms, writing centers. Um, I have particular learning challenges. They, what's the center to meet that? Um, think about food. I, we, were, we were looking at meal plans. Uh, in the 80s, lunch was an hour and a half. It was 11.15 to 11.45 to 1.15. Breakfast was an hour. Dinner was an hour and a half, right? Right now, if we just said, hey, dinner's an hour, people would really go crazy. Think about it. We are essentially providing food and you know, people, will come, people won't, won't believe it, but really good food, complex, lots of options, essentially, if not 24 hours a day, 18 hours a day. So when I think about why is education going, why is it more expensive? The cost of people, the cost of buildings, the infrastructure, but also the demand for services that really um, drive up costs. For some reason, whenever there's a story about the cost of education, people always talk about lazy pools or climbing walls. I don't know why those are always the things that people turn to. The real driver is cost of services, cost of student support, um, the legal context within which we operate. I mean, we we operate in a very litigious, Mm -hmm. highly regulated, so there's lawyers, there's accountants, there's financial folks. So it's an expensive proposition. Um, And by the way, um, this will be a very funny thing to say. The business model of higher education has never worked. It was either supported by churches, it was supported by the state. It's a public good that uh, is supported by alumni. It's supported, as I said, most institutions started as being supported by the church. It's a, it's a very challenging business model to provide a public good like we do here. So um, we do everything we can to control costs, but there are certain things that push it in certain ways. Hmm. Yeah. Going to move to the lower campus. Ah. So we got a bunch of questions, uh, not surprisingly, about Broad Street and just some of the uh, third century, century conversations about what's going to happen down there. Uh, Michael Walsh, a member of the class of 1973 from Winnetika, Illinois, asks, as part of beautifying the lower campus, I understand the telephone poles on Broad Street will be removed with all wires placed underground. 
What is the timing for this? <laughs> Not soon enough, Michael. I <laughs> uh, hate those telephone poles. Let's let's go back and get a frame of the lower yes. campus. People are like, what's the lower campus? Why does Brian keep saying middle campus, upper? Okay. Um, if you think about the traditional part on top of the hill with a chapel in east and west, think of that as being up. The middle campus is where the student union is, um, Dana, Little Hall, the library. So the middle campus is where we're building a series of academic buildings for arts, technology, innovation. Then we think of the lower campus is where all of our juniors and seniors live, along Broad Street and along College Street. So 16, 1,700 college students, Colgate college students, live across the street in a lot of complicated and very different buildings. Mm -hmm. What we want to do is say, as we build for the next century, what do we do with this set of buildings? How do we make this a campus? How do we make this a place that feels like Colgate, that all students can live with people they want to live with in ways they want to live, eat the way they want to live? And how do we fix these buildings? I mean, people know that uh, we purchased uh, all the buildings on Broad Street in 2004, and we've underinvested in maintaining them. Mm. Uh, so the first thing is, from a macro level, much like we have invested in the upper campus, how do we invest in the physical infrastructure of the lower campus, including the apartments and townhouses, fraternities, sororities, and theme houses, um, and the telephone poles? So, um, and, and I will say this, and I, I, I send out my apologies for those who live in these buildings. There's two buildings. Uh, a lot of our alums will think of them as Phi Psi, and I forget the other one, but the, the Brady Bunch House. And there's a series of rather unfortunate buildings that we put down there. We've got to take those down. We have to let the water, you know, Taylor Lake is in essence just simply a dammed up creek. What happens is it floods a lot. So we have to let the creek become wider on the other side. So Taylor Lake will have its twin on the other side just to let the water move. And we have to we have to bury the utilities as we start thinking of that as campus. We've always thought as the hill is the campus, and then everyone else lives down there. No, no, our students live there. So so how do we improve the infrastructure? How do we start improving the buildings? And how do we think about that space? So um, the Department of Transportation, the Environmental Protection Agency, and every other agency in the world seems to want to know what we're doing. Um, my hope is that we can turn to the utility poles within two years and get them buried. All that's right. that's the plan. Nice. Um, and along those lines, uh, Kenneth Zimmin, uh, class of 1987 of New York, New York, asks, can you outline the plan including timing for a refresh and enhancement of off-campus apartments? So I think it's along those lines, but maybe a broader scope of how long is this all going to take? Okay, the way we – if, if – when I look at other institutions that have made major investments in the residential infrastructure, um, particularly those that have sort of a system, uh, Vanderbilt, Villanova, Rice, Yale, now Dartmouth, they're all making sort of major moves in how um, particularly upperclassmen live on a campus. These tend to be like 14, 15, 18-year projects. One of the great challenges of, of thinking about residential infrastructure is our students still need beds. 
you can't just say, okay, we're going to shut everything down for three years, tear things down we don't like, and rebuild the whole thing. You have to swing your way through. You have to be like, okay, everyone leave this building while we build this. So what we're doing right now, and there are so many people thinking about this, Robert Stern Architects, uh, other space planners that have worked on Yale and Harvard's campus and have worked at Stanford, and you know, we brought in the best people to say, how do we start taking down the things that should be taken down? How do we improve what needs to be improved? And how do we build new things that complement what we want to do? We built, uh, Colgate built, I can say we, Starting in the 60s, it built a series of apartment buildings down College Street. As the population of Colgate grew, including doubling its population when it went co-ed, Colgate never sat down and said, wait a minute, what's our plan? So we went from 1,500 students to 2,400 students to 2,700 students, and no one sat down and said, what's the plan? So we're, we're now building that plan while students are living here. It's like fixing a plane while you're flying, right? That's what it is. So if you look at a series of decisions were made to move down College Street with a series of apartment buildings, uh, with Newell being the westernmost of them, Newell apartments need to come down. They're built in a floodplain. Sure. So they have to come down. So I think those would come down first, but we have to first build places for these students to go. Um, so I think the first move is it'll be, a, it'll be a sequence of how do we empty out some of the theme or fraternity and sorority houses on Broad Street? How do we empty out the apartments? How do we build new to, you know, how do we swing those people into new places? Have the experience be good while you're living in swing space? Move them back. Um, I don't know what that puzzle is. I have never in my life have seen as complicated a puzzle as this one. Hmm. Um, so uh, the board of trustees is meeting in, in, in two weeks. We have, a, we have a phone call today about this plan. My sense is not next year, because we have, we have too much construction going on the campus now. So not next academic year, but starting the summer of 24, we'll start seeing a combination of new buildings going up, the emptying out of apartment buildings that we don't like, and the renovation of existing buildings. I can't exactly predict what there's going to be, but that will be the beginning of a 10, 12-year process of moving down Broad Street to create a new campus. So that's a lot. Yeah. It's a lot. It's incredibly expensive. <laughs> it's incredibly expensive. <laughs> For those of you who have not made their Colgate fun <laughs> gift, this is what it goes to. It goes to the lights here. It goes to financial aid, and it's going to help us do that. Yeah. So, And uh, I'll, I'll cap off that, and I think probably on the minds of a lot of people, um, Peter Madsen, a uh, member of the class of 1969 from mm -hmm. Westfield, New Jersey, uh, wants to know if there will be new sororities. And mm -hmm. I'll add fraternities to that Fair as enough. well. Um, I'm, again, as a, as, a, as, a, as a guy from the Jersey Shore, the, the, the heavy representation of questions from New Jersey is really kind of uh, making me happy. Um, the question is, will there be more sororities? Uh, there's so many ways to answer this. So let me go macro to micro. When I think about what we're doing in the lower campus and building it, um, one of my jobs is to think in terms of centuries. It's, it's a third century plan. Um, we have students living in East and West Hall that were 
centuries-old buildings. So you always have to say to yourself, don't build to what we think will be needed in two years or three years. How do we build an infrastructure that will serve the institution 100 years from now, 150 years? Uh, you really have to think in terms of 100 or 150 years. When you don't think in terms of 100 years or 150 years, you get gatehouse, right? So the first thing is, is how do we build the infrastructure to serve at a very long-term level? And I don't know if there'll be sororities 100, 150 years from now. So you have to say to yourself, we have to build something that will work for what we think will happen 25, 30 years from now, but also what happens um, next. When I hear questions about sororities, two things happen. One is I think about the mechanics of what would happen. Sororities are actually not controlled by the institution. There's something called the National Panhellenic Institute. Um, I don't know whether it's a foundation. Council. council I think a National Panhellenic. So say Colgate decided, we want two sororities. It's not up to us. We then call the National Panhellenic. They come and observe us for a period, and they say, what's the demand? What's happening with the current sororities? And I know, because I've been at other institutions which have gone through this process, the first thing they're going to notice is we have empty beds in our sororities. Few people know that, mm. but they're not full. Now, they're large, but we have empty sorority beds right now. So the part they might say, you're not ready for a sorority until you fill up the ones you have. But let me go to a more macro question, which is when I hear at Colgate we want more sororities, what I really think I'm hearing is this. There are those who believe, and they're, they're probably right in many ways, that joining a Greek letter organization is not about becoming a tri-delt. Like, I don't feel this kind of massive, oh, I'm happy to be a tri-delt. It's like, no, I'm happy to live with uh, women I like in a community that means something to me. That's, that's what it feels like here. I could be wrong, but that's what it feels like. And now I have entree to social opportunities and parties and a life that, you know, I've crossed into um, an affiliation that gives me entree to what seems like a full Colgate experience. And there are those who feel that if I don't get into that, then I, I, I'm not, I'm not going to have a full experience. I'm not going to be able to go to social events that other people can. So when I think about that question, I think the real question is, how do we afford everybody the opportunity to live in community with people they like, have access to social events and, and social engagements um, available to others? So combining that macro question, and people think, why isn't he answering the question about sororities? Um, <laughs> we have to build an environment that lets all of our students have social forms that mean something to them and a full Colgate experience. I don't know, and, and, and this is an endless conversation on the campus with students, faculty, and with trustees. Does that mean more sororities or does it mean less? I don't know. I really don't know. Um, and I can, I can see both sides. I really, really can. Um, so the question, I, it's going to be determined, but the principles of the lower campus will be this. Every Colgate student should be afforded a chance to live in a community that means something for them. Every student should be able to eat in ways that mean something for them. Every student should be able to have social engagements and social connections that are enriching and, and powerful for them. Right now, we don't have that. And lots of it is because of our physical 
infrastructure. So we have to get the physical infrastructure right and then the pro programming question right. And if, if someone could make the argument that this is the best way to afford more people this chance to have the social engagement, then, then the answer is yes. If the, I, I don't know what that answer is. Um, I'm not avoiding the question. I'm just saying it's really more complicated than you think. Um, and I suspect this will be something before the board very much uh, as we come up with plans for the lower campus. So that's where we are. And that's as, as honest and lengthy an answer as I can give. So. <laughs> well, this, um, going into a little section about campus life, and it kind of connects with that, the experience and whatnot. And um, we actually uh, got a question um, from Instagram uh, from a current student. This is from Jamie Anderson. Uh, Jamie is a member of the class of 2024. Uh, from Denver, Colorado, and Jamie asks, why does Gatehouse still exist? <laughs> um, I wish someone could text me whether or not Jamie lives in Gatehouse. Why does Gatehouse still exist? You know, it's funny. Uh, this is, by the way, I'm going to go back to something. Whenever a campus makes a physical decision based on short-term needs, they always get it wrong. It, it is, um, this is what happened, much like our last two classes, that arrived on campus, there was a one large class that appeared, appeared out of nowhere. Uh, <laughs> you know, just, they just showed up uh, in the 90s. To address this large class, they, over the summer, on a parking lot, put up Gatehouse, which is a set of connected, essentially prefab trailers put up, um, with the idea of once this class graduates, we're going to take it down. That never happens in higher education. When space goes up, space is used. Um, what we got lucky, you know, we built Burke, uh, Burke Hall and Jane Pigeon Hall as an attempt to help us give students more space. Having, you know, those two residence halls built just before we were surprised by large classes, let us not build a second gatehouse. We built two other things. So gatehouse exists because um, the school's a little bit larger than it was in the 90s, um, and there never was a plan to take it down. As I said, Colgate never develop the long-term residential plan. So Gatehouse will come down because due to um, uh, Bob Fox, uh, class of 59, he's given the money for what will be Fox Hall, which will be um, uh, built right behind Gatehouse and allow us to come down. I am thrilled that Gatehouse, I personally am going to push that thing down the hill. The only person who likes Gatehouses, um, my dog thinks there's things underneath that. Every now and then you see a squirrel go underneath Gatehouse, and my dog is very focused on what's going on underneath Gatehouse, so I'm going to have to break it to him that it might come down. So anyway. But yeah, I hope, uh, Jamie, if you do live in Gatehouse, um, uh, let's have lunch. <laughs> so. Uh, Richard Burke, uh, class of 1992 uh, from Alexandria, Virginia, asks, what steps has Colgate taken and or plans to take to ensure free speech mm -hmm. and viewpoint diversity are valued on campus since the 2018 approval of the Task Force on Academic Freedom and Freedom of Expression? Uh, first, great question. Second, probably the most common question outside of sororities, that I, whenever I go and meet with alumni, uh, this question about how is Colgate promoting viewpoint diversity? How are we making sure our students are exposed to ideas that might be upsetting? Um, and uh, thank you for making reference to the Task Force on Academic Freedom and Freedom of Expression. 
Um, in my second year here, I, I said, we need a posture on this. So we pulled together faculty members, trustees, members of the alumni council and students, and I said, we need a position. We need to say what role free speech on this campus. And I invite everyone, and maybe we can put this on the web somewhere. It's on the web. Yeah. Um, the Statement of Academic Freedom and Freedom of Expression of Colgate was developed. It took them a long time to develop it. It was endorsed by unanimously by our faculty, by the Alumni Council, by the student government, and by the board. So that was the first thing. So we have it. And by the way, people go, why didn't you just um, endorse the University of Chicago principles of free speech? Um, I know the president of the University of Chicago really well. He's a dear friend of mine. And I said, we'll do a better job. And our, our, <laughs> our, our, our statement is much better. I think it's bolder in a lot of ways. So we have that. What we've done, and I, I, maybe people, because there's so much noise about this topic, and when something goes awry on one campus, it appears in the Wall Street Journal, um, it appears in the New York Times, it's on social media. Did you see what happened at Berkeley? Did you see what happened at MIT that disinvited a person? So I think there's a sense that there's lots of disinvitations going on. And by the way, um, I get the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal. If I if I open up the journal and think there's a big article about academic freedom, by the time I get to my office, I will have 60 or 70 emails on this topic. So I'm like, okay. Um, what we've done at Colgate, and maybe we need to do a better job saying what we're doing. We have this position, paper. We have a we have a policy. We have had very controversial speakers on this campus. We had on Constitutional Day a debate about affirmative action. We've had public debates about abortion. Um, the Center for Freedom and Western Civilization, which is on this campus, has invited uh, folks to come to this campus. But let me use the example of we invited John McWhorter, who is a New York, he appears in the New York Times, um, a sociologist, or he's a linguistic, sociolinguistic um, expert from Yale, who has written about the, he's, he's not for affirmative action. He thinks it harms black students. I mean, he has gone out there and said, it. we invited him. Now, we could have adopted the posture of, hey, he's going to say things that are upsetting to you. You should just be able to hear that. One, that's likely to produce the sort of reaction that is not helpful. So I really want to point out that Professor Spencer Kelly, who was actually one of the chairs of the task force mm -hmm. on academic freedom, he said, and he was the one who invited him, or part of the people who invited him, we're going to have someone come into this campus talking about a very sensitive topic. Our obligation is to help our students deal with this situation. We can't just say, toughen up, you snowflakes, listen to things you don't like. What we should say to them is, Let's understand his context. Let's understand his arguments. So the amount of work that went into seminars, evening discussions, reading groups, to get ready for John McWhorter's appearance on campus was as important as having John McWhorter come to campus. So when he came, students were prepared. And they, we had two students say, saying, I disagree with you. I've read your stuff. I've read your arguments. Here's why I disagree with you. Bravo, I say. You know what I mean? Like, like yeah. we are an educational institution. Let's do that. So that said, 
I think Colgate, and I'll take personal responsibility for this, I think we have a great statement. I don't think we're projecting out to our alumni and to the world at large those sort of steps. A dream of mine, back to the lower campus, is for us to take one of these new structures and have it be designated as a place for debate and inquiry and, and um, wrestling with difficult topics. Mm. Um, there's very, at Oxford, there's a famous Oxford Union, a building where people debate. I'm thinking, oh, why don't we have a Colgate Union? Why don't we have a place where people, that it says, oh, that's where we go, and there's really, really great discussion, um, productive discussion, not just shouting at people. I don't want to replicate on this campus what happens on cable news, left or right. How do we produce something on this campus, a space, a program, set of policies that let us do this? But I will tell you, that's a great question. It is the question I get time and time again. Um, so I'm, there's no easy answer, but I think we're doing good things. Could we do more? I probably, we probably could. All right. So we've got time, I think, for about two more questions oh. here. Um, so I'm going to start with uh, Chip Welsh, a uh, member of the class of 1990 from Sanibel, Florida. Chip asks, what is Colgate doing to improve the environmental sustainability of campus? Um, the fact this question is coming from someone from Sanibel, which just uh, really was devastated by a massive hurricane yes. and flooding. So here's a person who is probably can speak directly about how weather changes have affected in person. I don't know whether that's the case with you, Chip, but it could be on your mind. Uh, we don't talk about it as much, but we have a sustainability plan. We are the, we are the first college or university in the state of New York to be fully carbon neutral. Um, we have as many offsets and other ways in which we uh, uh, ameliorate our carbon use. Um, we have a sustainability council that overlooks uh, energy usage, um, issues reports. Uh, so, so we're on it. I think, uh, and this will be much uh, more pushed out to our alumni, um, the Benton Center, the first new building going on the middle campus, um, one of the reasons why the, that project is so big, if you were on the campus, it, it looks like the most, it's huge, the, the construction site. Um, it's because we're, we're going to make that building fully run on geothermal energy. And we're also going to expand the geothermal field down there. This Wittenall field turns out to be a great source of geothermal energy. So the whole middle campus, we slowly but surely want to convert that all to geothermal. So a lot of steps are being taken. Um, the Sustainability Council and the university's property committee looks at every new construction project. So it, um, it, we go beyond LEED certification. What's the carbon footprint of all these buildings? It's kind of it's built into our system, um, and you know I, I feel I feel good about that. Um, I also one of the things that. I planted the trees because I thought it'd make the campus prettier. When you have close to 500 trees, the, the, the trees are the best things going. Uh, the carbon offset from all the new bicentennial trees is remarkable. Huh. So, yeah. So, nice. Yep. All right. Well, we'll uh, close with a kind of a fun question. And I okay. received two versions of this question from two different students. Uh, ah. Actually, recent grads, excuse me. So we have uh, Max Barron, a member of the class of 2020 from Chesterfield, Missouri, and Anna McGinnis, a member of the class of 2020 from New York, New York. And they both asked, <laughs> um, 
about Colgate's legendary zip code. So they want to know if 13346 was a random assignment for our school or did Colgate have a hand in selecting the zip code? Um, first off, um, both Max and Anna are from the great class of 2020, which I always view as my class because we came in. I know Max and Anna very well. Ho- hope you guys are doing great. Uh, this is such a Max question. Uh, so I, you, 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 you tipped me off that this was coming in. So yes. I've spent an unusual amount of time uh, looking at this. So following World War II, the federal government realized it needed to rapidly improve its mailing system. So it took until 1963 for them to come up with a system. The first thing they did was they divide the country into nine regions. Um, each one assigned a number. That would be the beginning of what would be um, and it was it was the zip stands for zone improvement uh, protocol or it's something along those lines. But what would ha- the first number indicated which of the nine regions you're in. The second number is which of the sub regions. There's always nine within because there's only one digit within it. So it just happens that we are in one, which is New York, Pennsylvania. Three is our region within zone one. The 346, which also adds up to 13, I really believe this is serendipity. I I, um, So uh, knowing this was coming today, I actually called down to the post office this morning. (laughs) No one had any idea. So I'm just going to view it as just like the hand of fate handed us 13346. It is helpful because I can always remember our zip code, but I think it was just, just good luck. Wow. That's how we look at it. <laughs> well, President Casey, thank you so much uh, for this conversation. This was really great. Thank you. Um, and I'm, uh, I want to thank everyone who reached out with questions. Uh, and sorry to anybody um, if we didn't get to your questions. I know there were a lot we didn't get to. But we'll be doing this again with other leaders uh, next month and uh, beyond. Um, so keep an eye on your email for that. Uh, The best way to support all of the transformative plans discussed today is to make an annual gift to the Colgate Fund. Visit colgate.edu slash alumni for more information. And until next time, I hope everyone has a happy Colgate Day. And thanks so much for watching. Thanks so much for listening to this first episode of our new season. We'll see you next time. And until then, keep asking questions. 13 is a production of the Colgate University Office of Communications and Events. Episodes are recorded on campus in Lathrop Hall. Executive producer, Colgate Vice President for Communications and Events, L. Hazel Jack. Producer and host, Dan DeVries. And audio production by Brian Ness. Learn about all the happenings at Colgate at colgate.edu, colgatemagazine.com, and colgateresearchmagazine.com.